Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. All right, good morning C4 Church. Really glad that you're here this morning and want to say again a huge hello to many of you watching or listening online from Montana all the way to China in between. We're glad that you're joining us here today. If you've got a Bible this morning, uh, physically or virtually, I'd love you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you need to download a Bible app, I recommend the version one. I think it's the best one out there and uh, we'll get going today. As Pastor Dave said, this is week two in uh, our whole year, which our theme is Believe, but specifically week two in our our series called uh, I Believe or, or We Believe. Now, if you were with us physically here last week or you went online and watched it last week in a very concise and, and I would say a very powerful way, we outlined as a family what we believe in or, or who we, we believe in. Yet today at this moment for our community, we now need to ask something more. Not only what do we believe God is doing, but here's something more. What is God actually offering the world? What do we as Christians believe that God is holding out, uh, bringing to us as the human family? In other words, what do we hold? What do we know? What do we believe the message of our faith is? Now, I want to stop right here and say to you, if you've been doing church for years, do not disconnect because this is going to seem old to you. Because as I'm about to unfold this for many of us, There are parts of this I think this church desperately needs to hear. We're going to grapple with this right now. What is the message of our faith? What is what we call the good news? What is the gospel? What is, here's the word, the explicit message that comes from God expressed in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? In 81 days from today, it's going to be Christmas Eve. Yeah. Do you have your tree up yet? Costco does, do you? Yeah. In 81 days, it's going to be Christmas Eve, and you all know me. I'm, anyway, I was measuring Christmas trees yesterday. But in 81 days, almost two or over two billion people globally are going to gather to celebrate the birth of a Jewish man, actually a peasant, who we know is much more than that. And we will hear in hundreds of languages, and it will be Twittered and Facebooked and everything else globally, the words that have been said and sung and preached and cherished for 2,000 years. Luke 2.11, the angels show up, and what do they say over the shepherds? They say this, today, today in the town of David, uh, what? Say it loud, what? Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah. He is the Lord. See, God has always been in the saving business. And God through us and God through this church and every other local church of every stripe is offering something. Actually, we're offering someone. Yet my great fear is that many of us do not fully understand what we're offering. Or we only accept certain parts of it because of our own uncomfortability or our chosen or unchosen ignorance. Like I said, our theme this year is to believe. And as we talked about last week, believing is much more than knowing about something or believing something is out there. Belief for Christians is about absolute truth because it's about relying upon someone. It derives confidence. It's connected to someone. So if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you're not just saying he lived historically or he was some political revolutionary. You're saying, I've actually met him. I know him. I've trusted in him. I've placed my complete confidence 
in him. When I am dying in a car accident or on my deathbed at 80, I know that Jesus will hold me. And when I die, the first person I'm going to see is Jesus. See, that is belief. Now, the master theme of the Christian message is salvation. You can use other words, redemption, deliverance, recovery, escape. But the word I love best is rescue. The whole Testament is full of real, historic expressions that serve as foreshadows of what God will do for the whole world through his son Jesus. Noah and the ark. Israel's exodus out of Egypt under Moses. Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days and being vomited out. The list goes on and on. All of these were real historic experiences, but beyond that, they were given to prepare God's chosen people and the rest of the world for God's master move. The most famous, the most quoted, the most sung, the most yelled out on bumper stickers at football games, the most tweeted and Facebook part of scripture, most of you know it as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The problem is most people stop reading there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Is that good news? But whoever does not stand, does not believe, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Let that sink in for a moment. You online, wherever you are, airplane, go bus, in front of your laptop, listen. Let those old words sink in afresh. Love, gave, only son, eternal life, no condemnation or condemnation. See, here we begin to clearly see the great gift, but we also begin to see the dark and the dangerous. We begin to see the implication of choice. We see the implications of the explicit full gospel. Let's start where we must, as I asked you to turn to Genesis 2. Let's start all the way back at the beginning, at the only true golden age in human history. Have you ever thought about that? God, it says in Genesis 1 and 2, has created. God, the creator of heaven and earth, has invoked his artistic ability and palette, and he has created all that we know. And he says not only is it good, he says it is very good. And and actually, think about it. There is no death, no mourning, no pain, no disease. Why? Because the old order has not come yet. It says in Genesis 2.15, these words, hear the word of God. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. See, you thought heaven was all about just hanging out with Philadelphia. No, no, you work. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Go for it. Probably millions of trees. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. Mm Mm-hmm. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man would call each living creature, that was his name. So if you don't like the names of animals, it's our fault, not God's. Adam went hippopotamus. He went, God went, interesting. Okay. Flamingo. I'm not sure why. Mosquito. We'll talk to Adam later. Now, He names everything. Why? Why does God allow him to do this? Because it's showing us that we have dominion. 
So God gave, sorry, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, the wild animals. That would have taken a long time, but that's good. And, and still it says that Adam had no suitable helper, no, no helpmate, no connection. And so we know the story, or most of us do. Adam is put into a deep sleep. Well, that's no shock. He's a man. Anyway, he's sleeping. God takes out something, creates Eve. Adam wakes up. He's hanging out in the garden, naming I have no clue at that point. Sparrow, 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 okay. And as he's walking, it says that God brings Eve to Adam. Do you know in the Christian church why the tradition is you have a middle aisle? That a father takes a daughter and presents her to the man? Genesis 2. God brings Eve to Adam, and he cries out. Barry Might starts breaking in the background. He says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He gets very excited. And then the verse that is so missed by all of us in our heart is said. I love it. Verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Everything's amazing. Adam and Eve are with each other, and they're naked, and they're great. Isn't it amazing in our culture how mirrors are so dangerous for us? They're looking at each other going, fantastic. No shame, no guilt, no self-hate, no feelings of inadequacy. There is nothing between them. There is no wrong motives, no hidden agendas. And this implies, by the way, so you get the real context, that they are physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and sexually connected. Sex is happening before this fall. It is the idea of God. And notice, creation and them are fine. There's no threat between them and lions. They're hanging out. And oh, notice, there's no natural disasters, no war, no disease, no famine. There's no pollution. Why? Because at this point, our family actually is doing dominion right. We're not abusing the earth God has given us. We're taking care of it. Christians, we should be environmentalists. Side note. God cares for his world. And we're doing it right here. And it says, then they walked with God. Perfect, uninterrupted relationship. Physical, spiritual, creation, humanity, God, animals. It's the way it was supposed to be. Here, they believed, they knew, and they experienced what every love song that's ever been written desperately wants for. It is the cry for every person who's experienced injustice ever since the fall. See, they had something we want. It's called peace. And there was no need for the language, let alone the experience of salvation, redemption, deliverance, recovery, escape, or rescue. They weren't in a corner. They didn't need to be rescued. They didn't even know what salvation looked like. Can you think about that? But notice one thing. God warns them not to eat of only one tree. The tree of good and evil. Now, was God a jerk? Tempting us by giving us options? Is he a cruel father wanting his children to mess up so he can beat on us? Is he testing us like some bizarre military father so we can toughen up for the tough world? No. Never forget that we are the only thing in creation made in the image of God. And so choice is part of our DNA. It is why we are different than the rest of the animal kingdom. Because we do not just have instinct. We have free choice and will. This choice affirms us. This choice reflects us. It reflects who God is and we are. By giving us choice, it affirms that we're not robots, but we are really human. But with the choice, there are options. All was good, all was great, all was perfect, but then. Grade two, I was hanging out in Costa Rica with my parents. I didn't grow up in Canada. I was born in the Shoa and then took off. We were doing language school, and we were in Monte Verde, which is this famous uh, rainforest. 
And uh, I was a kid that loved animals. I had canaries, and I had rats, and I had turtles. Yeah, anyway. And we're going through the rainforest, and the guide said, now, one of the most amazing things you're going to see today, John, are these little tree frogs. And, and they're unbelievable. And you're going to see them because they're so bright. Now, if you go to the Toronto Zoo today, you can see them. And they're small, but they're, they're brilliant. Like, they're, they're, the black on them is black. The turquoise, the, the blue, the reds, they're so vibrant, and they're so amazing, and they, they, they stand out. I think every fashion designer from the 1980s looked at these and said, that's how we're going to dress, right there. So just vibrant, and I was so excited, and of course, I'm a grade two boy. I, I put scorpions with each other to fight. Yes, I did that. Counselors helped me later. Uh, you know, th- this is who I was, and I, I so desperately wanted to go and grab those tree frogs and have them as my pets, but he kept saying to me, John, don't you dare. Don't you dare touch them. They're the most beautiful thing out there in the forest other than maybe some birds, but if you touch them, you actually may die because they are so unbelievably poisonous. They look beautiful, but they're deadly. Well, in the first garden, it wasn't tree frogs that was our problem. It was a snake. Unbelievably powerful and beautiful. We know from Holy Scripture that this serpent, who is called in Hebrew the tempter, Naas here, is fully, of course, Satan. Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat from any tree in the garden. But God said, don't eat for the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And don't touch it because you'll die. You won't certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good from, from evil. And when the woman saw the fruit uh, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You will be like God, he said. Disobedience will bring blessing, don't you know? Breaking God's law in your relationship is the best thing you can do, and it will only bring positive results. The mixture of misquotation, denial, slander meant to seduce. You can be more than you are made to be. But Satan is living proof, of course, you can't do that. His lie was powerful, though. He was saying to Adam and to Eve and to all of us, it is so stupid It is so foolish to believe that there's some God out there and that he really loves you and there's some cosmic plan. Don't you understand you can just do anything you want without any eternal consequences? You don't deserve death or sin or hell because of sin. Don't you get this? C4, listen. God's afraid of you. He's using scare tactics to keep you down. Don't you know that God is deeply afraid of you? He just wants to keep you in your little box. You need to be free. It's time to stand up and tell them where to go. One wrote, deification is a fantasy difficult to repress, a temptation hard to reject. In the woman's case, she needed only to give in by shifting her commitment from doing God's will to doing her own. And whenever any of us, any of us, makes our own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, wherever, everyone ready? Autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person. That finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations imposed on them by their creator. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Sin's not only breaking God's law, it's breaking covenant. Sin smears a relationship. It grieves one's divine parent. It actually is a betrayal of one that we were technically in a marriage with. All sin has a God word force, everybody. 
Any act, thought, desire, emotion, that, or deed that displeases God deserves blame and is culpable and is a personal affront to a personal God. See, if God wasn't personal, this wouldn't matter. But when you or I or we sin, it violates God's very nature. And since he's personal, personal and involved, we're culpable. It says in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the coolness of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I say the last word loud. No louder than that. Hid. The starting point was distrust and pride. The foundation of all the pain right now in your life and mine. All the sin, all the brokenness that has always been experienced in the human family is driven back to one thing, hiddenness. To hide from God, to hide from truth, to hide from each other, to cover, to run, to invent, to obfuscate, to invent fantasy so you don't have to deal with reality. Hiddenness is true slavery. And so at that moment, God our Father, God our Creator, the Creator of heaven and earth, the lover of our souls, had to make the most painful and most needed decision. This is the first time in human history a parent kicks out a kid from the house. Genesis 3.22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground in which he had been taken from. And he drove the man out and he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden. And he placed cherubim, that's warrior angels there, with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. Please understand where we're going this morning. In the Garden of Eden, there's not one tree, but two trees. The tree of good and evil was there to give us honest choice, to affirm our humanity. But there is another tree there, which was the source of eternity. And this was absolutely dangerous. When Adam and Eve, our ancestor, on our behalf, took the first fruit, we lost choice supernaturally. And we died. And at that moment, God steps in and he prevents us from going to the other tree. Why? Because he's angry? No, it's deeper than that. He's crying out in his soul. He's weeping like every parent has wept as they've kicked a kid out of their house. Why? Because if we went back in a fallen state and took the other tree and took the fruit from that, we would live in a damned state forever. We would be eternally, eternally, eternally spiritually separated. And God in his love drives us out of the garden so he can come back and start to rescue us. What's the result of trespass and sin and chosen brokenness? Well, from original hiddenness, all of us are now alienated from God, alienated at levels from each other, and creation itself is not unified with us. Harmony, now disharmony. Peace, now war. Perfection is marred. And so each of us, the whole human family, has ever since been born into sin, and we have willingly joined Eve and Adam. The rebellion has been affirmed in every human life and every generation ever since. The Bible is explicitly clear about the bad news before it is good, before it is about the good news. The Bible says that we are under the wrath of God, we are dead spiritually, we are blind, and we are enslaved to evil, and we are destined to eternity without God, which we now call hell. See, the worst and the best among us, the most intellectual and non-intellectual, the most religious and unreligious, the weak, the powerful, the known, the unknown, all of us, let me say this C4 this morning, that is our condition, nothing else. We're not just sick, everyone. 
We're not just sort of in trouble. We're not sort of born good and then we learn things and go off the rails. We are in serious trouble. We're under God's wrath because of sin. A holy God must bring honest judgment. It is his very nature to step out and stamp out those things that violate him because he cares. Paul, so aware of his own brokenness, and sin paints our human condition rightly like this in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And since we may know what and since what we may know about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power his divine nature has clearly been seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse wrath is real and it's on all of us because we've participated in sin this truly is an indictment against the whole human family Paul says, humanity, it does not matter. You read Romans 1, 2, and 3. You can be the most deeply religious person, or you can be a militant intellectual atheist, or you can just live life. Doesn't matter. We're all under this wrath. Chuck Swindoll wrote, a God of love must have the capacity for anger. However, the wrath of God is not some type of the kind of bellowing anger that we associate with an abusive, out-of-control person. Paul describes the creator's response by using a word which means in Greek, upsurging. When used to describe wrath, it is a passionate expression of outrage, of wrongdoing. And in this context, it actually pictures God's wrath and his anger pouring up out of the walls of heaven down across the whole earth. And well, indeed, it is a passionate, upsurging response. It is completely consistent with God's character, who is love. His wrath is without question fearsome, but it is also controlled, deliberate, measured, and it is utterly just. His wrath is nothing less than a reasonable response to his righteous character and his unfailing love when he confronts real evil. It has long been the habit of humankind, he writes, to trade one God, the one true living God, for one of our own making. Listen closely, please. Please. Our fallen nature prefers a creator who does not hold us accountable for wrongdoing and passively waits around for us to reunite our relationship with him when we get tired of sin. But God is not a passive parent, everybody. He will hold us accountable for our sin, whether we acknowledge his presence or not. And the consequences of us rejecting him in favor of our own opinions and sin is far graver than we can imagine. The implication of eating from that and all of us as we are under wrath, but there's more. It says that we are explicitly dead spiritually. Ephesians 2, 1 asks, for you were dead in your trespasses and your sin. It says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Please hear this this morning, C4 family. Understand this. Accept this. We're not sick. We're not in a bad way. We are dead spiritually. Dead people cannot raise themselves to life. Dead people cannot act. Dead people cannot comprehend. Dead people cannot see. That is our spiritual condition before God. And it is why religion at its heart is so offensive to God. The arrogance to believe that if by what we do or what we say or how we pray or how good we are, that that will compensate for our rebellion and deadness. It is is vile in the nose of God. We are dead. We are under wrath. We are also blind and enslaved. What was given by Dave here 
multiple texts and emails from last week and this week is correct. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age, that same serpent, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's your mom, everyone. That's your dad. That's your little newborn baby. Please get this. This is your neighbor. This is your coworker. This is your family. This is your neighborhood. Rebellion, wrath, dead, blind, slave, complete loss. These are not just words or some intellectual idea. They are true. Now, if I stop preaching here, it's going to be pretty bad. But then, but then into that hell, into that darkness of night, into that unchangeable situation, into that corner, God, the same God that walked in the coolness of the day, comes back to rescue us. He comes back to deliver us, buy us back, to provide escape, to recover us. And he doesn't send some alien or some angel or some human being or just some prophet. He sends himself. And this is when we get the the good news. Only when we see our condition does the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus become so powerful. If you lessen your sinfulness, if you lessen God's wrath, if you lessen the work of the devil, you will not be grateful for how you've been saved. This is so key. Jesus is called Savior because by his death and resurrection, that is the place where God's wrath was not withheld but spent. Never misunderstand this. The Bible is clear. God did not withheld, withhold his wrath. He put it on Jesus. And that is why 1 John 4.10 is so powerful. And this is love. Not that we love God. How could dead, rebellious, under wrath, autonomous, angry people in the sense of towards heaven ever love him? Not Not that we loved him, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atonement brings it all home. It's an Old Testament idea of sacrifice. Jesus has become the scapegoat for humanity. Jesus stands as the ultimate sacrifice. That is why he is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the one that the Father justly has put our wrath upon. And think about this. He deals with our slander. He deals with our rebellion because he plates it on his son, Jesus. And not only does Jesus deal with our wrath, This is why this is such unbelievable good news. He cancels sin, and he even overcomes the serpent, the so-called God of this world, and he takes away his positional power over us. Colossians 2, 13 and forward, my favorite passage, one of them. For when you were dead in your sins, there it is, and uncircumcised in your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, which have canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the devil, he made a public, I love this, he made a public, a public spectacle of them, and he triumphed over them by the cross. Death can't speak again. The devil can't positionally own us anymore. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is why we hold, that is why we know, that is why we experience the truth, and this is what's been declared by Jesus himself, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to God except through me. 
It's what Peter said in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to which by mankind can be saved. Why do we believe this? Because he's the only one in history who's dealt with sin. Because he's the only one who's overcome death. He's the only one who's come back from the other side. Like I said last week, he wasn't dead on an operating table for three minutes. He, He sees light, comes back, writes a book, and we love it. He was dead for three days. And he comes back and he conquers death, he conquers sin, he takes the wrath of God, and he wipes out the legitimate legal rights that we gave the serpent at the beginning. That, my friends, is not just good news. As Pastor Joanna preached, that's the best news. That's the best news. But if that's not enough, there's more. He doesn't just do this, he doesn't make us earn it. The good news is this, God did not leave us in our brokenness. God did not walk away, though he had the right to. God actually showed up, and he lived this life. We were supposed to live, died to death. We deserved, rose again. And then he says, oh, by the way, everyone, it's a gift. Here you go. In the 1940s, a bunch of religious scholars got together. And they were debating about the uniqueness of Christianity. One said, well, it's because God became a man. And other people said, no, other faiths believe that. Someone else said, no, it's, we believe in resurrection. They said, other faiths teach that. They got really intense with each other. All the geek power got really intense. They were yelling back and forth, and in walks C.S. Lewis. And he can say anything he wants, in my opinion. I mean, wow. So he sits down, and I love this. Can you hear him saying this in an upper English accent? What's all the rumpus about? Bring back that word, rumpus. You say ruckus. I'm bringing back rumpus. Okay, rumpus. And when he learned what the debate was about, he smiled. Everyone went silent and looked at this former atheist, now a positional, strong defender of Christianity. He said, oh, it's easy, everyone. It's grace. You're not going to find it in any other religion on earth, not on any other worldview, not a political system. It's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are rescued by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, trust alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone, period. It's grace. Every other religion and every other worldview says you've got to earn something. And our movement says if you earn it, you'll die. He comes for you. We're not just saved, by the way, from something. We're saved to do something. We are called to do good works. N.T. Wright, I watched him this week. He was reminding us salvation is also lived out in our faith and life. We do not have perfect life as Christians. We will still experience disease, depression, and death. We will still have the struggles of the world. But here's the difference. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. And he gives us things like love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anyone want that? I do. And that's what was in Eden. And that's what the world fights over and longs for and sings about and hopes for. And yet when Jesus shows up in your life because of who he is, he will not give you the best life in the sense of we still are fallen, but he'll give you a better life. And at the heart of it is this. The good news is great because we also get eternal life. John 3, 16, we said it. Those who trust in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. Revelation 21, and those who have trusted in Jesus, there will be no more mourning, dying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. So I hold out to you this day, and we as a church hold out to all that we know, that we're made in the image of God, that we're made to be in relationship with God, and we can never take his place, and, and we can't handle that. 
and we believe the truth that we are fallen, sinful, under wrath, dead spiritually, we're blind and evil and under slavery. But we have an answer for this. We believe that Jesus has overcome all of this by his birth, life, death, and resurrection, and his ascension. We believe, we know, and many of us here have experienced that when we admitted we were sinful, when we called out to Jesus as the only way to God, when we humbled ourselves and put down our human pride, when we reached out, Jesus showed up. And he overcame all that was and is with a barrier between us and God. We don't believe in a perfect life, but we believe in a better life because God is involved and we believe in eternal life. That's an amen moment. We believe this. So let me end this way. The vision of our church is to become a regional church of 10,000. Right? Interesting. But before we get to that, let's ask ourselves the question, when we give this gospel out, what is going to be the result? When you go and tell this truth, What's going to be the result? Here's the answer. It's going to be very mixed. Paul wrote it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 1.22. It was foolishness to the Jews who asked for signs from heaven. And it was foolishness to Greeks who seek human wisdom. So we preach that Christ was crucified. And Jews are offended and Gentiles or non-Jews say it's nonsense. But to those who are called, those who are called, those who are called by God to salvation, both Jew and non-Jew, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. As you go out and you tell people the truth of Scripture, some, actually the most religious in your family, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Sikhs, witches, or more interestingly, nominal Christians are going to be deeply offended when you say humanity is as it is. They're going to be unbelievably irate at you when you say their religious works matter nothing to get into heaven. They're supposed to come post-relationship, not pre other people are going to write you off as stupid, unintellectual. Can't you think this is 2012? We have iPhones. What do you mean some guy raised from the dead? What are you people drinking? But for those who are called, it is the power of God. We have a God-given vision to reach 10,000 people physically, emotionally, and spiritually in Jesus' name. Let me make this very clear this morning. Please hear this. We're offering thousands of people, not John Thompson, not our church building, not our worship style. We're not offering our programs. We're not offering them me, and we're definitely not offering you or our elders. No, 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 no. We're offering people Jesus, the gospel. Our reason for existence here is to introduce people to the true Jesus and his profound, beautiful gospel. And then as they start growing, to build them up. Please never, ever make the mistake of offering them anything else but him. Who God is, our condition, and who we can be in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Our prayer is that 10,000 people, which means we'll talk to a lot more, will embrace Jesus, be called, and be changed. Two other thoughts, and it's this. I hope some of you actually have some joy this morning. I hope some of us sitting here and online actually have some joy after hearing this. I hope some of us would actually say, I am, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful, I'm elated, I'm joyful. I know we're not a big emotional crowd here. That's fine. But some people need to stand up and go, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I'm saved. I'm so glad that God is in my life. I, I cannot believe the implications of the gospel. This is so profound, so beautiful, so life-transforming. And if you've been a Christian for years, your joy level is connected to what you remember from what you were saved from as you look around. Please be people of joy. 
Because we've experienced the good news, the great news, the best news of Jesus. We're not under wrath anymore. Not only that, we're not under the dominion of Satan. Our sins are forgiven. We have a better life now and we have eternal life. Is that a good thing? Yes or no? It's a beautiful thing. It's like what Dave said at funerals. The reason why we are different is not because we're better, because we don't mourn like those who do not believe. Why? Because we have heaven-given hope. Don't reduce the gospel or you reduce your joy quotient. Last thing. Some of you who have been listening to this have realized that you don't know Jesus. Some of you have been in church for years, and you have realized you don't believe this gospel. You don't believe it. You don't believe this is your uncle. This is is not your child. You do not believe it. Or you don't believe it about yourself. I need to say, if you are a genuine follower of Christ, and what I've preached here this morning has deeply offended you, I'm going to say this very humbly. Repent. You are not God. Repent. You change your worldview to his. Because when you do, you will experience life and you'll bring life to others. If you are a person who has never met God, or you've had the religious titles or no religious title, and you're sitting here and going, if that is my condition, and as I've been preaching, you've gone, oh, I long for this freedom, then God is opening your eyes at this moment. What Dave prayed is taking place. So if this is you, pray this right now, please. And for you who are believers, at this moment, pray for eyes to be open. literally. People's lives depend on this. So if this is you who need to actually embrace God, pray this right now. Jesus, I've never been able to articulate it this way, but yes, I am under wrath, and I'm blind, and I've been dead to your things, and I'm in sin, and I'm not free. And so I'm coming to you, Jesus, right now, and I'm asking you, rescue me. I turn from my old life and trusting in myself or religion and other things or my own arrogance, or my own pity. I ask you now, meet me. I want you to become Savior and Lord. I want the wisdom of God in me. I want Jesus in my life. I turn, I repent. Never let me be the same. Lord, if someone's prayed that, we pray you'd move now in Jesus' name. For others of us, we pray this, Lord, forgive us for watering down your gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for reducing things or not being honest about it. We're being ashamed of the gospel because we suddenly believe that if we tell people the truth, they won't accept it, which of course implies it's up to us, not you. Forgive us. I pray that you forgive me and change my worldview. And for our whole church, I pray continually for joy as we realize the depths of things we've been saved out of, that there would be a deeper, deeper joy taking place across our community, an unnatural joy because we know that Jesus is our Savior our Lord, our friend, and we get to walk with God again. We ask this in the name of the Father who called us, the Son who died for us and is our friend and our companion and our brother and the Spirit of God who allows us to walk with Jesus in this life and the next. And everyone said? Okay, let's sing to him. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 